I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview with Roger German from Shedd Aquarium in Chicago is about 15 years old. So there are certain items of specific information that are now out of date. But in general, this remains a highly relevant and I think interesting conversation about one of the jewels of the cultural landscape of Chicago. I hope you enjoy it. What a great pleasure and privilege it is for me for the next few minutes to be speaking with award-winning author Paul Fleischman. And uh, before we begin our conversation, a special word of greeting to uh, all those who are maybe listening today to WGTD's morning show for the first time, uh, people who have been participating in this wonderful program called Racine Reads, in which readers across the community of various backgrounds and ages uh, are encouraged to take in hand a single book. And in this case, Racine Reads uh, is encouraging people to read this beautiful book called Seed Folks. Paul Fleischman uh, does something really extraordinary by showing us what is possible in uh, the midst of the world of of, of poverty and difficulty. Uh, In Seed Folks, he tells the story of a community garden springing up rather spontaneously uh, in the midst of uh, of a poverty-stricken neighborhood in the inner city of Cleveland. And uh, and he does so in, in really uh, remarkable fashion. And we are going to be talking with him for the next few minutes about the experience of writing uh, this book, uh, released by uh, Harper Trophy, a, a Joanna Cotler book, Seed Folks, again, by Paul Fleischman. Paul Fleischman, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you. One of the things you mention in the book is that you actually uh, did something sort of similar to Seed Folks in an earlier book. And by that, I mean the idea of giving us the voices of a whole host of different characters. Tell us first a little bit about that choice that you made as an author. Well, that earlier book was called Bull Run, and it was an account of the Civil War's first great battle, told not from the usual omniscient point of view, but from the points of view of 16 different characters eight northern, eight southern, back and forth, characters repeating, um, carrying their stories forward. It was really an attempt to write a symphony, as it were, and it was a very symphonic sort of piece uh, that required that kind of organization and planning ahead of time. And um, it can be performed by readers. It can be read as a novel. But I loved going from A to B and C and D and then back to A and then to H and back and forth. Um, I wanted to use that form again, but vary it. And so in Seed Folks, I decided that the characters wouldn't repeat. I used 13 characters, but they just appear once, more like um, short, short stories. Um, And some of the later monologues, the earlier characters do make brief appearances. And in some of the earlier ones, later scenes are, or characters are foreshadowed. So that's the format. You hmm. have 13 different characters. And uh, a varied lot they are. You also mentioned the fact that a, a couple of the characters uh, who were originally a part of this book ended up falling by the wayside by the time this book took final form. That's often the way it is with writing. The house I grew up in actually had a a little house out back of it, which was known as the guest house, although no guests ever stayed there. And it was built from the leftovers from the main house. And books um, leave their own glacial moraines on the side as well. Uh, Many of my books have come out of 
characters and situations that didn't quite make it into the final product. Mm. So yeah, I was going to have a Vietnam vet who was, I had an image in mind of him sprinkling very tiny seeds. You know how small carrot seeds are? They're almost microscopic. And imagine him sprinkling them um, almost in penance for all of those seed-like bombs he had helped drop in Vietnam, for instance. Hmm. Didn't end up finding a place for him. Right. Um, several other similar situations. I love how you say at one point uh, that uh, books do not usually come from a single source. Like rivers, many tributaries flow into them. And there is a lot that is behind this book and why you chose to, to, to write a book about the creation of a garden. Uh, one of the things you say is that you yourself are not a gardener, or not much of a gardener, but there are other things in your life and background and life experience which, uh, which, which, which lead you to, to want to e- explore this. Well, that's certainly true. It's, when you're starting a book, it's almost as if you're walking a beach and you're picking up some shells that just uh, washed in the night before and some that have been there for a thousand years. So you're drawing from things way back in your past. In the case of seed folks, (laughs) my mother, way back when I was in high school, was a volunteer at a therapeutic garden attached to a veterans center in Los Angeles. And she was working with, you know, shell-shocked veterans of World War II, Korea, Vietnam, in a garden setting, helping them try to get their lives back together through gardening. Um, that was an old memory. Much newer was the article I had seen, which really spurred the book, about a therapist in the area I was living in who used gardening as a therapy. Um, and in that article was mentioned something, you know, 4,000 years old, that in ancient Egypt, um, doctors had recommended or prescribed, as it were, a walk through a garden as something that might cure or at least calm patients who were insane. Um, so, you know, you're, you're drawing on all different time periods. They all come together. Yes, there's, I mean, there is something so timeless about a garden. And for all that uh, maybe has changed in terms of some developments in technology and so on, in some respects, the way we grow gardens and uh, the reasons we appreciate them are, uh, to a remarkable degree, I suppose, unchanged over the course of thousands of years. Well, indeed, you, you go from that article about that mentions ancient Egypt to 9-11. The Boston Botanic Garden opens its doors for free after, you know, the same day as 9-11 and was swarmed with people who were um, just hungry for that peace that being around plants can provide for some people. Hmm. Let's talk a bit about the neighborhood in which this garden springs up, and we'll talk then about some of the the characters. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, this, this neighborhood is located uh, in a poor part of, of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, tell our listeners why you chose Cleveland. Well, I wanted a city that would have a large immigrant population. Seed folks is an old term for ancestors. And my original thought with the book was doing a lot of first-person stories about the first generation to come to America in various different families, but that idea didn't play out, and um, with the word seed in it, it seemed a natural title for this book. So 
So I wanted a city with a lot of immigrants. Cleveland was famous for its immigrant population in the 19th century, um, and today is no different than most large American cities with a new set of immigrants. Um, so I needed variety. I needed a northern city, a place where a garden would, the green that a garden would provide would mean a lot after a long, long winter. Cleveland is famous for its winter. New York City's got a big winter. Why not choose it? Well, New York City has been, has been done, <laughs> not once but a million times. So something a little out of the ordinary appeals to me more than something that's been done to death. Hmm. Um, you and right. I had friends in Cleveland. So if I wanted to ask a question um, about something, I could look it up, which I'm used to doing, but I, sometimes it's hard to find things in the backs of books. Can you see across Lake Erie to Canada? Good luck finding that in the index of a book, but you can call up your friend and get the answer like that. Exactly. Well, and, and th- there's maybe one or two very brief moments when we're shown a little bit of the rest of Cleveland, although for the most part you, you focus your attention exclusively on this little neighborhood. But I love one moment when uh, one of the characters uh, is meeting friends, I think, someplace, and there's some sort of maybe observatory tower or someplace in, elsewhere in the city. Uh-huh. Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, uh, it, it is a tower, and the name of it escapes me, not being a Cleveland native myself. But she takes her friends up it and notices that you can't even see the garden from there, the garden that, for all the other characters, looms so large in their lives. But, uh, but not only dwarfed by all the buildings around it, but, but utterly obscured by them. Uh-huh. Um, you write so perceptively about this neighborhood. Uh, at one point, you say, uh, giving us uh, this in the words of, uh, of a character named Anna, this has always been a working-class neighborhood. It's like a cheap hotel. You stay until you've got enough money to leave. Uh, you write this as though you have actually lived in a neighborhood like this. You write with uh, a, an interesting mix of realism and affection. Well, that's nice to hear. But I must tell you that write what you know has been advice I have never followed. (laughs) And many writers don't. Uh, Certainly, um, I would advise people to research what they don't know, and I certainly do that. Um, But no, I did not grow up in Cleveland, have not lived there, um, and have not really lived in too many neighborhoods like that. I did go to school in Berkeley, which was certainly multicultural, but um, not lower socioeconomic, at least, where the university is. Um, I mean, I've lived all over the country um, in all kinds of places, but not really a neighborhood quite like that. Hmm. Uh, I'm really astonished to hear that, only, only because I, th- I think you, you write about it as though you had. Uh, I mean, this does not seem to be written by someone who just read about such neighbors, uh, neighborhoods or well, talked with people good. about such neighborhoods. I did visit neighborhoods. I just haven't actually lived there. But a friend of mine was the co-founder of one of the community gardens in Boston, which has a wonderful whole series of gardens. And that was a neighborhood very much like this, lower socioeconomic. And the, <laughs> the garden was such an oasis among, among this world of red brick to then come across the green. And so I took notes of places like that. Um, all over the country, I began visiting community gardens wherever I would go on my travels. Hmm. Um, but no, invention is uh, a big part, <laughs> obviously, of writing fiction. And sometimes, to tell you the truth, facts get in the way. If you're dealing with your own material that you have lived 
it can be very hard to break out from that. Of course, I can understand that. It's interesting because I guess uh, those of us who are blessed to not live in such neighborhoods and never have, uh, it is not very often our inclination to look very closely at such places. I mean, our, our eyes do not linger lovingly over such neighborhoods. And, uh, and clearly, you were very interested, probably even beyond the purposes of writing this book, interested in knowing more about the dynamics of such neighborhoods and what it feels like to live in a place like that. Well, you know, you're driving down the street, you're walking down the street. Every street is its own planet. And indeed, every house is its own planet, its own universe, with its own set of natural laws. You know, we have gravity. <laughs> they, you know, what, what natural laws pertain in this family? How is this house aligned? I mean, those thoughts go through my head all the time. And truly, the world um, is unexplored. <laughs> it's unknown. It's as unknown as, you know, when people first set foot on North America. So there are a thousand universes waiting to be probed and described. We're speaking with uh, Paul Fleischman, and we're talking about his beautiful book called Seed Folks. This garden springs into being, in a sense, almost accidentally, very spontaneously, and it is not the result of some sort of civic-minded group of volunteers getting together and saying, let's create this. Uh, uh, For the sake of those few listeners, maybe, who have not read the book, uh, explain how this garden first comes into being. A girl from Vietnam, born in Vietnam, but after her father had died, uh, now finds herself living in Cleveland, and her family has just celebrated the anniversary of his death with offerings made to a small family altar, and his picture is there, and... um, she realizes that he has never seen her and doesn't know anything about her, and she wants to make him proud. He had been a farmer, and so all on her own, she decides to do something that her class had done. They had sprouted some lima beans in little paper cups, and so she takes some beans, and she heads to the very dirty, vacant lot nearby her apartment and in secret plants them and in secret waters them as something for him to look down on, to see her hard work and her skill at growing things as well. He would see my patience and my hard work. I would show him that I could raise plants as he had. I would show him that I was his daughter. And so she, of course, has no concept of all that she's beginning a community garden. And from that character, you go to a character who is and lives across the street from the site and sees the girl watering and wonders what's going on. And from her, you go to someone else in her building who goes down to investigate when the plants she has stopped watering begin to wilt. And he meets her, and he becomes involved for different reasons. Mm. And it goes on from there. Mm. I love some of the words you give to this character named Wendell, who actually makes his way... Uh, down to the garden, and uh, uh, and he investigates, discovers what's going on, uh, does some watering. This girl comes along. They never even exchange uh, a, a single word. But uh, Wendell then says, uh, as he reflects on on that encounter and finding those those little beans, "There's plenty about my life I can't 
change, can't bring the dead back to life on this earth, can't make the world loving and kind, can't change myself into a millionaire, but a patch of ground in this trashy lot, I can change that, can change it big. Well, those are thoughts that I think a lot of us um, can comfort ourselves with. We, we can't change the world entirely. And it can be a great comfort to compass off a small area in which you can do something. Focus on one person, one situation. In, uh, in, in some ways, one, one of the most interesting things you do is uh, by giving us a couple of different characters who are, are so transformed by this experience of seeing the garden or becoming interested in it. In particular, that chapter given over to a character named uh, Gonzalo. And uh, there was an older man in his apartment. Is it his, no, not his grandfather. I think it's an uncle, an elderly, elderly relative, I believe. Uh-huh. I believe it is his grandfather. Okay. And, uh, and you talk about how when someone like that at that point in life has almost nothing that they are able to do anymore, that it is almost like they are a baby and what made them an adult before is, is gone. For this elderly man, the experience of seeing this garden and making his way down there to share advice, uh, un- unrequested advice, I might add, uh, is, is for this old man and for uh, the, the, the young man watching him, it's a, a transformative event. Yeah, well, of course, until quite recently, it was the old who were the repository of knowledge. They weren't out of it. They were the ones who were in it. They, they knew more than anyone else in agricultural societies. And it took a long, long time to gather all of that knowledge and experience. Mm. And so for him, being you know, moved from Honduras to America, uh, suddenly he was a person who knew nothing, didn't know how anything worked. And so coming across the garden... Suddenly he's back in a familiar world where he's, he's competent and there's something he can do and can contribute. Mm. We're also uh, introduced to a character who is, I believe, wheelchair-bound named Mr. Miles, who also uh, is able to experience uh, something like that. I think another really interesting character is one named Curtis, who uh, is uh, a, a young man, a young, incredibly well-built man, who has been kind of a ladies' man and then experiences some real disappointment in sort of mistreating a, a, a woman that, that he very much liked and now wants very much to reconnect with her. And uh, this garden becomes a part, of, a part of Curtis's effort to connect back with uh, his friend, is it Letitia? Uh-huh, that's true. He, he woos her in an unusual fashion. <laughs> <laughs> via the tomato. You'll have to read that chapter. <laughs> it's a wonderful chapter about uh, how he raises her, what is her favorite vegetable, in the hope that she will appreciate that. At one point you have Curtis saying that uh, because she was so angry at his indifference uh, or insensitivity from years before, uh, she is not interested in speaking with him. And so he says, no chance for words. So I dece- decided to give her some deeds instead. An interesting, uh, thought-provoking look into uh, the human condition and, uh, and the way in which we, we interact with, with, e- with each other. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a secret. In, all, in almost all my books, there is a character who 
communicates not through words in that way. And I hadn't really realized it was in Seed Folk until you just said that. But mm. it's, it's very true. Wow. One of the things you do is that um, we're, we're treated to real life. And so this garden springs up, but not without its problems. So, for instance, uh, you have one character observing the, the rather sobering fact that this garden, as it is springing up, is springing up in rather segregated fashion, uh, that the whites are over here and the blacks are over here and the uh, Far Easterners are over there. And uh, uh, I wonder about your, your choice to, to give us some of those kind of moments in which Everything does not un- unfold or unspool as, as ideally as it maybe would in a, let's say, a, 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 a second-rate Hollywood script. Yeah, well, in real life, community gardens have a lot of problems. Their main one is losing their land. Often they're on parcels owned by the city, and the city suddenly decides it needs to sell it for the money, it needs to use it for something else, and the garden is gone, and that's actually a very common story. And it breaks the heart of a neighborhood once they've gotten used to having that garden there and more and more people have gotten involved. It's a constant problem. Water, I discovered, is another constant problem. Vacant lots don't typically come with faucets springing up out of the ground. And it can cost a lot of money to make that happen. And as you well know, lugging gallons of water is a real, real chore. And so that issue is brought up in the book. Segregation, I'm... Not sure if that came from my reading, from talking to people, or if I just made it up, but um, I believe it's certainly credible. Um, Absolutely. We, we tend to recreate our, our families, our neighborhoods, our situations uh, in miniature in situations like this. You also mentioned uh, the interesting problem of, of one of these gardeners from the neighborhood uh, taking more land than really is fairly his and uh, raising, is it lettuce or cabbage? Uh-huh. Uh, f- f- with, with, with the intent of, of, of selling it. That was and, based on a real case, uh-huh. and I'm sure, I, I'm sure there's been more than one. But typically, um, produce from community gardens is just to be enjoyed by the person who, who grew it or to be shared, but not to be sold. It's not meant to be a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has visions. He's a taxi driver. And he's heard from a fair that you can get a lot of money for, you know, prime baby lettuce at, hmm. at snazzy restaurants. And so right. that's his dream. Right. He's a buck in it. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, most of what this story is about is, is about the affirmation of life and uh, the beauty that springs out of this garden. One of the most inspiring stories is about, uh, I believe, a Korean woman named Say Young, who has experienced something uh, uh, rather horrible earlier in her life and is only little by little healing from that uh, earlier trauma. But for her, uh, seeing this garden spring up in her neighborhood and eventually being a small part of it is uh, an essential step in, in the process of her healing from those devastating hurts. That's true. And her character also came out of the newspaper, something I'd seen years before and has stuck in my memory about somebody who had been assaulted and had then retreated into his apartment for years and years and years and years. And so in the case of, say, Young, the garden is her, her invitation to come out, hmm. little by little. It brings to mind another saying in the book uh, spoken by a character named Amir, who is originally from India. 
when he looks at America, he says the object in America is to avoid contact, to treat all as foes unless they're known to be friends. Here you have a million crabs living in a million crevices. I can well imagine that for certain neighborhoods that that are dangerous or seem to be dangerous, uh, that is one very accurate picture of what life can be like. Indeed, even in any American neighborhood, <laughs> maybe maybe not seen as foes, but we, you know, we don't grow up with very much sense of community anymore. Um, I certainly didn't. I grew up in the suburbs and have always missed that sense of closeness that you find, say, in a small New England town, which is a setting I have lived in. Hmm. And I think seed folks came out of came out of that desire, that wish, that um, that actually informs a lot of my books on the advantages of having friends and neighbors you know and the connections between them, hmm. building connections. And, of course, the other thing that this book is about is something you, you, you mention in its, in its epilogue when you say that you sense that all of us have hidden stores of generosity, that, that we are by nature much more generous people than might be immediately evident in the course of our day-to-day lives. And you kind of lament the fact that so often it takes something like 9-11 or the tsunami disaster or other moments of sort of cataclysmic hardship for us to be able to tap into that inner generosity. You've, you've created for us in this book a, 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 a much simpler, quieter kind of scenario in which almost miraculously this sense of generosity with one another is uh, is sort of discovered or rediscovered for many of these people. Well, I'm, I'm afraid it's true, and it's a sad truth. You know, there's a famous book, sociology, called Patterns of Culture, Ruth Benedict's classic written, I think, in the 30s, and I read it years ago, talking about what cultures offer people, and some of them are very warlike, and some of them are very this, and some of them are very that. And then, you know, in a capitalist culture we value individuality and so we don't have an easy way to express our sociable feelings our generous feelings things we do not for profit it certainly comes out in times of disaster with a certain amount of relief we do have those feelings those impulses inside but they aren't uh, there aren't a lot of places to express them hmm. well it might be uh, very well expressed in uh in such a garden were one to spring up in one's neighborhood, or if one was to, to begin that themselves. Well, tell me, are there any uh, community gardens in Racine? Well, as a matter of fact, we have seen some of this sort of activity, I think especially in, in Kenosha, the city just to the south, where, uh, where uh, community gardening has, uh, has sprung up, not quite as spontaneously and simply as it does in the pages of your book, but uh, it is a, a very promising start. Well, I will look forward to seeing it when I come out. This book, again, is called Seed Folks, and it is by Paul Fleischman. It is currently the Racine Reads uh, selection and uh, has been read and enjoyed by readers all across the city of Racine. And Paul Fleischman, I thank you so much for writing such a beautiful and inspiring book, and I thank you for joining us today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Well, thank you. My pleasure.